Good morning. My name is Carl Bader. My wife Sharon and I have been members here for four years, and while I know many of you, there's many of you I don't, so I'll start a little bit at the beginning. Um, our family, Sharon and I, and our uh, son Andrew, 13, and our daughter Jacqueline, 11, have been coming to Well Springs for a little more than four years, and during that time, I've been part of the tech team, which I love, and it, uh, we help bring the, the video and the audio to you on Sunday mornings. I've also had the pleasure of playing with the band on occasion. I filled in for Teresa, particularly in the early days before Andrea had joined, and filled in for Aaron on drums many times. Teresa, Andrea... Andy, Harry, Aaron, thank you for what you bring to us on Sunday mornings. I love it. It's a great part for me of what Wellsprings is about. I've also had the pleasure of serving on the management team. My uh, term ended in June, the end of June. And um, I'd like to share with you something that happened in management team meeting probably about eight months ago. Um, and it has to do with Ken's sabbatical. And we had talked about this in, uh, several times over the years um, mostly with encouragement from management team members. At some point, Ken, you're going to have to take a sabbatical. You need to take. You need to go away and refresh. So Ken came prepared to talk about it, and he had his paragraph and the pros and cons. And there's never a good time. And you know, it was, it, I had heard it all before, so it's blah 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 blah. And I halfway through, I had made up my mind. I'm voting yes. Not only that, I'm going to be an advocate of this. I mean, after all, Ken had been in the pulpit. It's for probably 48 times a year, and it's coming on five years. He needs a break. He needs to get reset and recharged and broaden his perspective so we can come and do his magic. And while I, I believe he's an inspirational leader, even visionary leader for our congregation, we are Wellsprings. You and me are the meat of this. And we can fly on our own for a while. We just can. So I was, it was absolute yes. And I'm ready to be an advocate in case somebody voted no we're you know we're not ready fortunately everybody said yes you should do this now i will share with you if ken had put at the end of his paragraph the words and carl i'd like you and teresa to give the first message the first week that i'm out of the pulpit i would have probably folded and said ken i don't think it's a good idea at this point for you to take a sabbatical <clears throat> i'm out of my comfort zone no doubt about it i've addressed the congregations on several times or as part of the management team, we talked about our business mostly. Sometimes sensitive and, and difficult topics. But this is different. This isn't about business. This is about our essence. And I've come to expect something on Sunday mornings in the message that I can take away, that alters my perspective, that gives me at least a little something. And Ken often throws out a dozen of these little somethings. I maybe only take in one or two, but I want to take something from it. So what am I doing here? I started to ask myself that question. Well, it's about music, and music has indeed been a big part of my life. Oh, I could start by telling you. Some of you know bits and pieces, but I want to give you five data points and ask you to fill in all the blanks. There's an awful lot of blanks, but five data points. Just to say, this is Carl's history with music in his life. First one, Christmas morning, 1963. I was six in first grade. My mother and I lived with my grandfather. I came down for my presents on Christmas morning and I got a very elaborate gift. 
it was a portable stereo phonograph. And I loved it. It was life-changing for me. It was extravagant. I was surprised my mother spent the money. We didn't have a lot of money. But some, maybe it was life-changing, and maybe moms just know that kind of stuff. Second thing was, about a month, six weeks later, I said, Mom, can we get a record? I, we had a couple records. I played them through. And can we get another a record? I'd like to get a new record for the, for the record player. And she said, we can go this weekend to the record store in Pashunk Avenue and we'll see what they have. We went in and through a recommendation we left with this album. Anybody recognize this? And this started my love for listening to music, really. Um, this is the original album from that day. I, I, it stayed with me through the years. I was reading, it's actually in mono, can you believe that? And I was reading, just reading the cover a little bit, and I have to read this to you. This is a little sort of a, in the, in the disclaimer, the, the little words at the bottom. This is a monophonic microgroove recording. It is playable on monophonic and stereo phonographs. It cannot become obsolete. <laughs> Isn't that great? Okay, so that's data point number two. <clears throat> data point number three. I had started really getting into music, and I was watching a TV show um, called The Monkees. Remember The Monkees? And I was in awe of The Monkees. My favorite part by far of the TV show was when they played. I couldn't wait until they did the bit where they actually played the music and did the song. <clears throat> Shortly after the monkey, about a couple years probably after they started, another show came. I'm going to play you a clip. You guys remember that? Some of you are old enough. So, what that did was, while I thought the monkeys were awesome and my God, I love what they do, and I never thought I could do it. These guys made me think, hey, I could do it. If Flegel and Bingo and Drooper and Snork could do it, I could do I could play music. And I got interested in actually playing. Okay, fourth data point. We're going to go way up. This is, um, I guess, from about 1977 to 1985. I played a lot of music. I was a singing drummer. Didn't do either particularly well, but if I put them together, I can get a good job. Played about 2,000 nights. That's a lot of nights. Um, and that's what I looked like back then. So the one, obviously, on the left is singing drummer. The one on the right is an important piece of who I am, though. I was really always interested in the gear, why I gravitated towards the tech team right away when I came to Wellsprings. It was a great way for me to get plugged into our congregation. I encourage you, find your way to get plugged in. We have all these things, springboards and teams and find your way. Some of the relationships that I've made here come from, from these roots. So anyway, back to this data point. I was always into the gear. I'd played a lot. When that phase was done in 1985, I got a degree. My mother was thrilled. I got a real job at General Electric. I was in engineering side of the house. I did that for 10 years. I then went to a company that made musical instruments and did it there. 
ultimately started my own company about 10 years ago, and we still make products for the professional audio industry. So it's been a big part of my life indeed. And all of that doesn't qualify me one little bit to stand up here on Sunday and give something to you like we get from Ken. So I've been really nervous about this whole thing, let me tell you. I started to think, what could I say about music, even though it's been a big piece of my life, that you might resonate with, that you might take away? So I thought I'd break it down a little bit. To me, three main ingredients. Of course, there's other things, and we can debate that. But we're talking about pop music. Rhythm, melody, and lyrics, three main ingredients. Rhythm's the cadence, right? It's the beat. And if the beat's good, we call it a groove. Thing that makes, a, makes us clap our hands, stomp our feet, shake our booty, get into it. To me, that's the most important element, but that's, who, that's how I'm wired. I'm a, I'm a drummer. Then we have melody. Wikipedia says, melody is a linear succession of musical tones which is perceived as a single entity. Melody itself has pitch and a rhythm component. Here's an interesting thing about melody. I think it's infectious. How many times have you said to yourself, I can't stop thinking about that song. I can't turn that player off in my mind that I want to do. And then there's lyrics. Words with meaning, words with multiple meanings, words with interpretive meanings. That's not what that artist is saying. This artist is saying this. Well, you're both right, kind of a thing, right? Music is really individual. And let's just stick, stick with this rhythm, melody, and the lyrics for a minute. I know lots of people who come at music first from the words. Because what's the meaning of the song? Because that's how they're wired, that's how they think, and they like to come into it that way. I'm the exact opposite I mentioned. I always think of rhythm first. And melody second, close second. And lyrics a distant third, believe it or not. I will confess that I've played songs, I've learned songs, played songs as a drummer, didn't need to sing them, maybe even hundreds of times, and never even actually knew what the song was about. But we're individuals and we're unique and we approach music in different ways. Most everybody likes music of some type, though you may not like mine. If we happen to like the same kind of music, your favorite artist is my favorite artist we had just met, we have a bond. I mean, there's an instant place where we can launch off into a conversation, maybe even into a relationship. Consider the opposite. Someone who you know for a while, there's a little tension, maybe a co-worker, you don't resonate real well with this person. And then you find out that you're both going to the concert for whoever, and it's your favorite artist. This makes make you uncomfortable a little bit. It's like, wait a minute, that's my artist. It can't be your artist because you and me are different. We're not the same. Have you ever heard, if you want to learn about somebody, look at their iPod? So music is this universal language, yet it's incredibly personal. I started to think about how music gets into our consciousness, our being. And I thought of three ways. The first one, we consume music quite often, maybe even most often, very casually. But think about it. 
when we're driving, when we're working out, when we're dining, when we're shopping, music's usually playing. It's usually in the background. It's usually getting into our consciousness. Retailers, as a matter of fact, give a, a lot of uh, resources to making that playlist just perfect. Perfect example is, of course, during the holidays, we have the music that gets us to want to shop and spend money. But it's really casual listening. Then there's the other kind, the concentrating on music to really hear its intricacies. I do that usually only when I'm learning a song to play. And it, it always amazes me if I'm refreshing a song, a, play, a song I played a while ago, maybe I'm filling in for Aaron and I need to listen to it again, and I, and it's, I find something new, something different. It almost all the time that happens. Then there's this third thing. It's not casual consumption and it's not critical listening. It's some other place. It's the place where music alters your mood. It's almost transcendental. Fortunately for me, during my teen years, I was able to get to that spot when I needed to. I told many close relationships, particularly in my tw 20s and, say, early 30s, when the memories of the difficult times during teen years were fresher in my mind, that I wouldn't have made it to 20 had it not been for music in my life. Well, the specifics of that, I'm happy to say, have faded away a bit. But I remember, and I know that that is absolutely true for me. I think we have a primordial or elemental need, or maybe it's even an appetite, to have our emotional needles moved. And so often music is the catalyst for that. I have, to, I have to give an example, and I have to ask, I have to give a reference to the Phillies. Any Phillies fans here today? <laughs> of course. Do you ever notice when Chase Utley steps into the batter's box, they're playing Led Zeppelin's Cashmere at Citizens Bank Park every time? I mean, it's his battle song. It's meant to psych out the pitcher and the other team that this is a warrior coming up, a great warrior with an incredible pedigree. Um, and it gets the emotion of the teams. I listen to, even on, when I'm watching it on TV and I hear that song, it's just like, here he comes. It's, you know, it's, it's a stupid example, but it really is real. How many people have comfort songs, a place you can go to? Great. It's way less calories and fat than comfort food, although I do use both. So what's all this mean? You guys recognize this? I think this is actually the first magical product. The iPod is the second. Okay? And, and here's why. This does amazing things. It does so many things around the house. WD-40. By the way, WD-40, you know what it stands for? Water displacement and the 40 is the 40th attempt at the formula. Okay, and it was invented for some military kind of thing back in the 50s. But it's become this incredibly useful household thing. I mean, it keeps things that are working working, makes them even work better, fixes things that are broken. It can unstick something that's hopelessly stuck. 
So here's my simple takeaway. Music is the WD-40 of life. What this does for nuts and bolts and pulleys and hinges, music does for our lives. Music's that magical thing that can take a bad day, turn it into a good day, or a low mood into a high mood, or a sad feeling into a tolerable place. We use music here at Wellsprings to aid the flow of our emotional journey on Sunday mornings. And Teresa's going to talk about that because it's so effortless the way it's done here. It's really a beautiful thing. So as I prepared for this way out of my comfort zone morning here to talk about music and thought about how it was part of my life, I had thought about it in ways I hadn't before. I did broaden my perspective on music and its connection to me and hopefully I've done the same for you. Thank you very much. Carl, as he explained took a path that sent him right into music as a calling and a career. I didn't. Uh, to be honest, me being up here is an accident. Let me tell you about my first time at a Unitarian Universalist church. It was about six years ago. I wasn't a churchgoer at the time, but I was dating this guy who was a minister. And it only seemed right that I see him in action one Sunday. So he invited me to his church inside a school cafeteria. Now, I hadn't been to church in years, years. I grew up Catholic. I left when I was 16. Church itself just hadn't been all that interesting to me. But I did, even back then, sort of enjoy the singing. Raising my voice, feeling it mingle with the others, listening for that sweet spot when everyone was on pitch. We even had some songs in my church that were kind of contemporary, like Blowing in the Wind. He's got the whole world in his hands. That was our rockin' song. So I get to this, this new church, and there's something a little different about it. You know, we got chairs much like this. It's in a school cafeteria, and these are on the, on the seats. And we were to take one of these and stand up and turn to page 123. You could show that slide. That's what was up there on page 123. Now, here was a song I had never heard of before. I had never heard it in my church. I had never heard it on the radio. I had never been taught it at school. Now, if you know how to read music a little, then then you know what this is. I mean, this is basically a blueprint for the song. You know the little drawings there are notes, and the way they're drawn signifies the pitch and how long each note lasts. Now, I took piano lessons for years, but I was really rusty on sheet music. It didn't mean that I could sing along with this, and by now the piano had started, and this was about to go very badly for me girlfriend of the minister standing there with the hymnal and she can't sing the song so I did what my high school uh, choir teacher taught us she said if you can't sing the song hide it by mouthing the word watermelon over and over again now I doubted that then I doubted that worked and I doubt it now but that's what I did that morning watermelon 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 now, 
I felt a little cheated that day. I had taken a step back into a church, but I didn't enjoy the one thing that I enjoyed with church before. The music, I mean, the melody was, was pretty, and the lyrics perfectly appropriate, Spirit of Life, Come Unto Me, but I didn't know the song. I couldn't participate. I just didn't feel it. What I didn't know at that time was that was my first lesson in being a music director at Wellsprings. Uh, obviously, the guy I was dating was Ken, and I became one of his very early consultants when this church started. The Wellsprings plan was not to grow a church just for Unitarian Universalists, but to grow a church for people who weren't. People like me, people who might have been turned off by early experiences, but who wanted something. They were open to the idea of getting together and experiencing. Ken saw that a certain kind of worship was taking off, particularly in evangelical Christian communities. It had drums, it had guitar, it had bass, it had keyboards. Now, to us, it made sense. Rock and roll was way older than we were. We were born in 1970. Rock was born in the 1950s, 40s, 30s. You can just go back. We had listened to recorded music our whole lives, and so had our parents. It was practically in our DNA. You know, I learned a little bit more about this when I started reading this book. Uh, it's called This Is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Leviton. And it discusses how the human brain is wired to understand music and when taste in music is established. And it's largely in the teen years. So as Ken and I separately grew as teenagers and young adults, for both of us, bands became our tribes. Lead singers were our ministers. Songs were our prayers. All our lives, we had been moved and inspired by music. And it turns out, according to Leviton, that music is a language we learn as small children, and it grows over time. Our brains learn these schemas, these blueprints for music. And when we encounter songs that violate those schemas, our brains tend to rebel. Leviton explains that to enjoy a song, it can neither be neither too predictable nor too complex. Otherwise, chances are good you won't enjoy it. So the issue with traditional church music that Ken and I discussed a lot is that fewer and fewer people are exposed to it. In this age of recorded music, traditional church music is not what is blaring out of our radios or being traded among kids on CDs. It's not being added to our movie soundtracks, unless it's for a very specific purpose. We're listening to other stuff. Carl talked about comfort songs. We all have those. One of mine was Nothing Compares to You after a really bad breakup. Ken knew that to grow a church, you have to speak to people where they are and help them find meaning there in the everyday. Otherwise, it's like giving a sermon in Latin because it's tradition. That's why we do this kind of music. We do rock music, we do funk music, we do country music, because that's a language we already know. Now, I couldn't do this myself. I do it with these guys. These guys are amazing. Amazing. But isn't it funny that it wasn't all that long ago that rock music was considered dangerous? Not just dangerous in church, dangerous, period. 
You remember that 1980s movie, Footloose? It came to mind when I was thinking about this message. Footloose was loosely based on a southern city that banned dancing. Banned dancing. And you'll remember the young Kevin Bacon, so strapping, going to the city council meeting with a Bible and quoting straight from it, Psalm 149, praise be to the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song, let them praise his name in the dance. Again, I wasn't a churchgoer, but that movie taught millions of 80s kids like me a few snippets of an important work in religious history that supported their case for a new song, a new song. So there is a formula for songs here at Wellsprings. First, we don't do hymnals. Freeze everybody up, everybody can move. Second, we do ask everybody to participate and we try to make it easy for you. You don't have to know every song, but I hope anybody who walks in here knows at least one. Remember when I said that Neuroscientists say musical taste is established in your teen years. Well, that's why we tap into music from your teen years, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Whatever your age, I hope you're experiencing a song here that you already love and now can find new meaning in. And that includes the kids. That's why we draw songs not just from the Great American Songbook, but from the radio today. Things like New Soul, one Day by Modest Yahoo, Beauty in the World by Macy Gray. Now, that's not to say we never go further back, because we do. There's a reason we sing so many spirituals here. Not only are they part of our tradition of justice, they are also songs that were written for participation. You sing, you respond, you call in a response. It's a very natural feeling. Sometimes we do sing songs nobody knows. That's the trickiest part of leading worship. Just earlier this morning, we sang a song a lot of you might not have ever heard. How many of you had heard the song, Our Generation? Oh, not a single hand. Yep. But you'll notice, hopefully you enjoyed it. We kind of taught you how to do it. We taught you that when Harry sings a line, you call back, let's straighten it out. And hopefully it felt natural to be guided in that kind of call and response participation. That's by design. We want participation. We want your voices and your bodies to reach out. We want this room to vibrate with our existence. Now, you might feel a little uncomfortable sometimes with the whole sing out loud thing. I understand. You might think that your neighbor next to you isn't singing. They're not clapping. But I can tell you this, up here I do watch. And I see things that you might not. I see people swaying, raising their hands, kind of like an old-time gospel thing, closing their eyes, mouthing along, and they're not mouthing watermelon. I see children hopping in their seats. I never saw that, even on the most rocking Catholic church day that I experienced. I was not allowed to be hopping anywhere. I see people fulfilling our mission and getting charged full with the charge of the soul. Walt Whitman's poem obviously inspired that, but when I read back over it with this message in mind, I found a line in there. All is a procession. The universe is a procession with measured and beautiful motion. 
measured and beautiful motion. That's music. It's measured in beautiful motion. When you hear a so-called Wellspring song at a store or at a Starbucks or on the radio or on your iPod, I hope you're reminded of this place here. You're reminded that you are alive, you have community, you have a tribe, and that helps bring you back here to be charged full with the charge of the soul. Let's pray together. Hearts of our deepest yearnings, may we be reminded every day that this universe has so many rhythms. May we be blessed to feel it and to hear it and to have it carry us through all our days. Amen.